book verse by verse, but highlighting certain stories that are found in Genesis. And there's some great stories in there. Last week, we looked at the story of creation in Genesis chapter one. Today, we're going to look at the story of Adam and Eve. And so my text should be up on the screen for you if you would rather uh, open your Bible and read along. We're going to be reading Genesis chapter one, verses 26, and then to the end of the chapter of chapter one, and then in chapter two, four through twenty five. So just listen to these words and maybe it's like hearing them for the first time. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now jump down to 2.4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic, resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. 
It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam or the man, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. It's immediately obvious to me in reading this passage that the pinnacle of creation was human beings. And that's not a prideful statement at all. It's a matter of fact. And it's good theology. The rest of creation, the created order was good, but the creation of human beings was very good. Mankind is the apex of creation because they reflect God's image. We human beings are imagers. We are also the focus of God's love and grace which he poured out on us in the person of Jesus Christ, whom he sent to redeem us. Look at verse 26. It says, let us. Now, that seems maybe a bit odd. You're thinking you're reading the Old Testament. You would think God would say, let me let us. Sometimes people refer to that as the royal plural. It's a polite way of saying, you know, you did something, but you don't want to say I did it. You say we. No, I don't think so. Or could it be the divine counsel? God and his holy angels and the other spiritual supernatural beings of heaven. They're the let us in our image. Again, I don't think so, because God and angels are different. They don't have the same image. What we have here, amazingly enough to me, is an early glimpse of the Trinity. Right here in the first chapter of the Bible, the foundational chapter, we see the Father and the Son, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Look at Genesis 1-2. You see the Spirit was hovering over the water. So right here in the first chapter, chapter 1 of the Bible, we see the Trinity. Let us make man in our image, Imago Dei. God forbade the making of 
images, graven images of him. But he said, we are in his image. He made us in his image. Let me give you two keys to understanding our place in creation. The first is we were created to reflect God's image. The word likeness is a reflection of. It's something you see. And the word image is an impression that's made. And both carry the idea of being seen. So that's what's important. Let's say you want to mail a letter. You put a stamp on that letter. It comes to the post office. They see the stamp. They send your letter on. God puts his image on us and in us so that we could show forth his image and how we live our lives to the rest of the world. That's why every human being should be and must be respected and honored and treated fairly. Because every human being, you'll never lay your eyes on another person for whom God didn't make. He made them all in his image. And he loves each human being on this earth so dearly. Secondly, we were created to rule over creation. That shows our capacity as imagers. We are in that way like God who also rules. We are like his Vice regents. Revelation 22, 5 says there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord. God will give them light sometime in the distant future and they will reign forever and ever. That's our destiny to reign forever with Christ. So we have this relationship with God and his creation. We are to reflect his image and rule over his creation, which is contrary to the teaching of Eastern religions that teach God and creation are all the same. They're all one. That's not biblical. And it's different from modern Western progressivism, which says creation is over and more important than human beings. Almost we say baby whales and abort baby humans. We certainly should be concerned about the environment as stewards of this creation. But the environment, our world, is not equal with us human beings. We're over creation. We're supposed to rule creation. So that's why I'm somewhat skeptical uh, when I hear stuff about a green agenda. The World Economic Forum, you could look that up. And the Great Reset. Talk about a green agenda, which to me is more for totalitarian control of a few over people. I think that's what that's really about. We humans reflect the image of God four ways. First is through our personalities, through our personality, the essence of who we are as people, our ways includes our use of language. Our gifts, our skills, our ability, our thoughts, the way we think and act, that's all part of our personality. And God made us that way because God thinks and acts and wills. Animals are different. They, they move by instinct. But we humans have our personality that's given by God to express himself. Secondly is our sexuality. The Bible says he created them male and female. God made both 
in his image, even though he's a spirit. Our society skews that idea of sexuality and and confuses us by saying you can be some other sex than what you were biologically created to be. So I'm glad for our denomination to update our faith and practice on these important matters. So I thought you might be interested to hear our new statement on gender inequality and also on marriage. We believe that God created mankind in two genders, male and female. Each gender created equally in the image of God. Genesis 1:27. Each gender was designed to exhibit different but equal parts of the nature of the creator. Genesis 2:18. In society and in the church, male and female are designed and gifted by God to function together, embracing their divinely ordered differences. And then the marriage statement. We believe that marriage, as first described in Genesis and later affirmed by Jesus, is ordained by God and is a covenant relationship between one biologically born male and one biologically born female. Biblical marriage marked by oneness, lifelong fidelity, faithfulness, sacrificial love and joy displays the relationship between God and his people. So am I using my personality to reflect God's ways? Am I using my sexuality in such a way that honors God and reflects him? Then thirdly is our morality, our conscience, how we assess between right and wrong. God has created each human being with this inborn capability to know the difference between right and wrong. We're given free will. To make choices. And as a result, we're responsible for our choices and accountable for them. So I ask myself, are my choices that I'm making, how I'm living my life in the day to day, is that reflecting God's image well? And fourthly is our spirituality. We're a spiritual person, a spiritual being. So this is not our thoughts, our will, our passions or any of that. It's how we relate to God. God has given us a capacity to relate to him. It says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the evening. They walked together. They had a relationship. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has put something in us that enables us to relate to him. But we will see the next time I speak how sin has disrupted that communication between us and God. And the Bible says that we're dead in our sins and trespasses and separated from him by sin. So am I spiritually relating to God and reflecting his image well in my life? Now we come to Genesis chapter two and we get much more detail on the creation of Adam and Eve than we did in chapter one. The focus in chapter one was more kind of a broad overview of the creation. In chapter two, it really focuses in on the sixth day and the creation of Adam and Eve. It says that God took dust and formed Adam. You got the potter and clay metaphor that the Old Testament and even in the new loves to use. 
But later, God takes a rib from the man and makes the woman and breathe life into him and into them, his spirit. The Hebrew mindset was that you have an outward physical body. You have the real you on the inside, which is spiritual spirit and comprised both together makes a living soul. I've read a long time ago that chemists say that there's about five dollars worth of chemicals in your body, that if you were just boiled down to chemicals, that would be your worth five dollars. Yet no chemist can make a human being in his lab. Only God can. We see stem cell research taking aborted fetuses. We see cloning transhumanism, a combination of A.I. and humanity. We see chimeras, uh, kind of a combination of animals and humans. And these kind of experiments are happening in the world. This is very dangerous. These men are trying to play God with his creation. So we remember that we are but dust and are worth about five dollars. Yet we are invaluable and priceless to God because his spirit is in us and we've been made in his image. Psalm 103, 13 and 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. We see in chapter two that God has given responsibilities to our first human parents. Let's see what those responsibilities, what they were. The first was to work the garden. We see that in verse 8 and verse 15. Eden was a real place. It had geographical boundaries that are described in verses 10 through 14. Don't think of it as mythology or a fable or something. It was a real place. Scholars aren't sure where Eden is today. One theory is it's in southeast Turkey because of the rivers mentioned here or start there or in southeast Mesopotamia, which would be near the Persian Gulf in Iraq. But because of the flood and the topography of the earth was affected by the flood, we're not perfectly sure. But know this, it was a real place. Gardens and mountaintops were where the dwellings of the gods on earth were. The word Eden means delight. So the place God put the first human beings was delightful. It was perfection on earth. Yet we know the rest of the story and how sin marred the earth and the earth groans waiting for its redemption. And that one day God will restore this planet to its pristine perfection in a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation 21 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And Revelation 22 describes heaven as a garden, a new garden of Eden. So while the garden was a delight, it wasn't just for pleasure only. It was also a place for work. Work was mandated to the first human beings before the fall. So work isn't really a four letter word. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. We're created to work. Adam was a farmer, a gardener, a zookeeper, a zoologist. And he also got to be creative and name all the animals, showing that he was ruling over the land 
and over the animals. Secondly, for our human parents, the responsibility was to obey God's commands. We see that in verse 9, 16 and 17 of chapter 2. God always gives commands. He sets boundaries, establishes perimeters. He tests our free will that he's given to us with choices. He wants us to worship him and obey him freely. Do we really love God? He didn't make robots that could not disobey him. He gives us free will. So Adam and Eve were free to eat from all the trees of the garden. In fact, in chapter one, it says that he made all the plants and trees of the whole world for food. They had 99.9% of all the trees to eat from and the plants. Plenty of good stuff God gave them, but one. God gives us free choice within limits. We'll see the next time that Adam and Eve chose to disobey that one singular command. But God would give them hope. He would redeem them again. We see that in chapter 3, verse 15. And in Revelation 2, 7, he promises the tree of life again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And the third thing is to love another. God created us to love others. He created us male and female to relate through our sexuality, our gender to others as friends and spouses. But we see that Adam was lonely. This is the first not good of the Bible in chapter two, verse 18. Our God is a God of community. He dwelled in all eternity with Father, Son and Spirit in community. God is all about relationships. And so he wanted a relationship for the man he created. So now we come to Adam and Eve meeting each other. That's the most famous meeting in history. Imagine that you've never seen another human being before. And for the first time, you lay your eyes on another person. Firstly, though, God parades the animals by Adam to name them. But it says there was no companion found there among the animals. No, the animals are too big, too small. They don't look right, God. Then God performs the first surgery. Our, the first use of anesthesia was right here. He put Adam to sleep and took a rib from his side. God split the Adam and created Eve. And then what we see here is the first wedding. And God walks Eve down the aisle as father of the bride to Adam. And Adam reacts in verse 23. And honestly, when I read his reaction, I'm a little disappointed. He sounds like an orthopedic surgeon. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's not that exciting. That's not what you say to your bride. It's not a great pickup line. But actually, the Hebrew is a little more expressive. It goes, wow, this is it at last. You got it right, God. She's it. She's like me, my own flesh. And so it is at a glance that every marriage is born. At one time or the other, you glanced at your spouse for the first time. You saw each other. And so it's good to reflect on the wonder of our mate. She was, remember, originally inside of Adam. And that's a beautiful 
uh, metaphor right there. She came from his rib to be beside him, not from his head to be over him or from his feet to be walked on by him or to walk on him. She was created as his helper. Now, it doesn't say slave. And a lot of times, ladies today, read that into it. That Hebrew word means corresponds to or completes. And that exact Hebrew word is used 21 times in the Bible. 15 times that word helper is used of God. God isn't anyone's slave or doormat. Helper has a negative connotation, I know, in our culture, but it's not negative at all. It's positive. God is our helper. It says 15 times in the Bible. It's God-like. She is your equal. She is your partner in life. And now we come to verse 24. And Moses gives an editorial comment. What his thoughts are on marriage. And I like the reading in the King James Version. So let me read it from there. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And I like the word weave. So we've got leave, cleave and weave makes a good wedding sermon. The man is to leave the most intimate and secure relationship that he has with his parents and his family. And he's to unite himself to, with a virtual stranger and begin a new family. He's to cleave, which shows passion and especially permanence. This word cleave shows permanence. That word literally means glued together. That's why we call it wedlock. A wedding is a welding and that's why divorce is so hard. Because divorce takes two people who've been glued together by God, welded together by God, and then it's ripped apart. And pieces can fall through. Weave means sexual intimacy where the two become one flesh. And if children are born, that one fleshness is really evident, especially when they look like you or your spouse or a nice combination of the two of you. At every wedding or most weddings, there's a unity candle on the back and the couple takes the two lit candles and they remember lighting the center candle, the unity candle. And then what do they do? I always instruct them to turn to the side and blow out that candle symbolizing I've blown out my own singular life where I'm it's all about me. I make all the decisions. But no, your two lives have been blended into one now. And the couple were naked, but felt no shame. Verse 25, we see the innocence there of this couple in that moment. But I think this verse tells us to receive your spouse warts and all. Don't try to change them. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't need you to be Holy Spirit Junior. Give your love and give your respect. Wonder and oneness. Some couples need to recapture that again. And maybe need some Christian counseling. And that's okay. We, we all need help from time to time. God wants your marriage to last because it's his idea. Now, let me close with some points of application. How can I apply the story of Adam and Eve to my life? Let me just offer you some suggestions. 
You could read the book of Genesis. Great stories in there. Just read along. Read chapter two several times this week and God will show you some unique things. Allow it to speak to your life. Another thing you could do is reflect on God as creator. We saw that last week. God made everything, including your marriage. Praise him for your mate. Be conscious this week as you look at every person that you encounter at work, in your neighborhood, at the grocery store, as someone made in the image of God, that God deeply loves. And and let that give you some awe. And be sure to praise God for how he made you. He made you how he wanted you to be, right? Your sex, your personality, your abilities. He made you right. And lastly, for application, glorify God in your work. Maybe you hate your job. Look at it as, God, you placed me here for this season uh, to do ministry for you, to enter the mission field of that workplace and see it as a kingdom opportunity. Lord, thank you for your word. It is authoritative in our lives. It is the truth. And if we put it into practice, it can guide and shape our lives to please you. Thank you, Father, for making each one of us in your image. That's an awesome thought. And Lord, may we reflect you well this week in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.